Building Trust in Government is a monthly podcast sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, informing national policy with objective, nonpartisan insights. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast series, Building Trust in Government, a conversation with leaders in government, industry, academia, and the nonprofit community about how to create better outcomes through policy and partnerships. I'm Jim Cook, MITRE Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships. Today's conversation will focus on the national security strategy and the push to the Pacific. I'm honored to have two very special guests with me today. Joining us on Zoom is Michelle Flournoy, co-founder and managing partner of West Exec Advisors and a former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Welcome, Michelle. Good to be with you. And joining me here in the studio is Dr. Kyoki Jackson, Senior Vice President and General Manager for MITRE's National Security Sector. Kiyoki also serves as the director for the National Security Engineering Center, a federally funded research and development center sponsored by the Department of Defense. Welcome, Kiyoki. Great to be here, Jim. So before we get into today's topic, I do want to acknowledge Dr. Ash Carter, who passed away very recently. Dr. Carter was a career public servant, a visionary, and a leader and mentor to many in the national security sector. Amongst his many roles inside and outside of government, he was also a MITRE visiting fellow and had previously served on our board of trustees. One of his many accomplishments was to lead the Obama administration's push to the Pacific, the focus of our discussion today. Michelle and Kiyoki, I know both of you knew Dr. Carter well, and you share many similar thoughts on this topic. He left quite a legacy and he will be missed. Michelle? Yeah, I had the privilege of meeting Ash almost 30 years ago when we were both at what was then the Center for Science and International Affairs at the Kennedy School. And he was even then a larger than life presence, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant mind, someone who was at the center of the intersection of science, technology, and national security. And um, also from the beginning, so committed to developing young people and bringing new talent into the field and inspiring others to, to work on these important issues. And you know, you trace that all the way through his career as Secretary of Defense, as you said, he had a tremendous impact on the innovation ecosystem, on removing all constraints on women in the military, on supporting the Indo-Pacific strategy, on supporting the fight against ISIS, so many accomplishments. And we're just gonna miss him. He he was, we, we've lost him too soon. And our my thoughts and prayers go out to Stephanie, his wife and his kids, Will and Ava, and all who, all who found him to be just a beloved colleague. Indeed. Kyoki? You know, Jim, as Michelle said, he was really a larger-than-life presence uh, through my entire career in national security. I'll say that there was probably no greater advocate for science and technology uh, in our national security system, no greater advocate for our defense industrial base and the industry that makes all this possible, and then, of course, uh, an incredible advocate for our allies and partners as part of our integrated national security. So all themes that resonate strongly today in our national defense strategy, and we will sorely miss him. And I'm sure that some of the things that he's taught all of us about today's topic will resonate in your remarks today as well. So Michelle, let's start with you for the first question then. As the U.S. continues to emphasize the need to focus on the Pacific and to counter China, what are the concrete steps the U.S. can take to demonstrate U.S. resolve in the region beyond just rhetoric? Well, I think the most important thing we have to do is to actually consistently show up in the region. 
Um, and this means not only in terms of military posture and presence and regular uh, freedom of navigation operations and exercises with our allies and partners and so on, but also diplomatically. I mean, unfortunately, there's still ambassador, US ambassadors to key Asian countries that have not yet been confirmed by the US Senate. And so we need to make sure we're fully postured whole of government in the region, that we're participating and speaking out at all of the key regional fora, and that we're really investing in our allies and partners. I think here the Quad is very important. Um, the AUKUS initiative is very important reinvigorating our alliance relationships with countries like Japan, Korea, Philippines, and others are just so, um, so important. And then of course, making the right investments um, on the military side to make sure that we have credible capability to actually deter Beijing from any aggressive action. Well, you mentioned alliances a couple times in that response uh, and you referred to several. Can you comment on why the special relationships the U.S. has with Australia and the United Kingdom in particular are so critical as we strengthen U.S. commitment in the region? So these are two allies who have consistently fought alongside us um, in just about every uh, conflict. Um, and um, I think Australia is obviously critical geographically. It allows us, I think we can build out our cooperation with them to give ourselves much more flexibility in terms of basing and posture uh, in a country we're comfortable working with, very comfortable working with. And then they are also investing significantly in building up their own capability, not only in a submarine capability, but in many other high-tech areas um, and have a meaningful contribution to make you know, uh, to, the, to the region in their own right. UK is also important not only because of the close relationship between our militaries and the capability they bring to bear, but it's very important to signal that European powers care about what happens in the Indo-Pacific. They have a stake. They understand that their prosperity, their security is also dependent on the kind of rules-based order that either holds or collapses um, in that critical region. So I think for both of those reasons, those are, you know, it's the AUKUS initiative is incredibly important politically and in terms of our alliances as well as militarily. So Kiyoki, you've also been personally involved in um, work and, and relationship building in both Australia and the United Kingdom. Can you talk a little bit about how your work is helping to build and strengthen those alliances? You bet, Jim. And as Michelle said, they value as much as we do these incredible partnerships that have been built over, you know, not just decades, but more than a century. And again, they have showed up uh, in pretty much every conflict uh, alongside with us. So this is something that we need to sustain and invest in. Now, if you look at some of these actual agreements, take the AUKUS agreement. So AUKUS stands for Australia, UK, and US. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of key elements to that. There's what we call the nuclear propulsion piece for, uh, for submarine propulsion. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it emphasizes one of our key areas of advantage, which is um, undersea warfare and the ability to create additional mass 
by partnering together uh, across the US, UK and our Australian partners now. The other is an advanced capabilities. And we are investing, of course, very heavily in a whole set of things from hypersonics to artificial intelligence to quantum information sciences, as are Australia and the United Kingdom. And so individually, we're doing great work. What bringing ourselves together here allows us to operationalize these capabilities for national security effects and capability much more quickly and to create what the Australians now are calling interchangeability versus mm. simple interoperability. So the conflict in the region would likely take place across air and sea domains. Given China's technological prowess, what should the U.S. expect in the cyber and space domains? Kyoki? Well, I think the reality is we probably haven't seen anything yet. And uh, if you look at what's happened in Ukraine, say, since 2014, obviously we've seen uh, Russia has attacked critical infrastructure, taken out the power grid for you know hundreds of thousands of civilians, uh, and most recently uh, performed cyber attacks against commercial satellite communications infrastructure. Uh, but what we're likely to see in the future is much more uh, scale and coordination between these sort of non-kinetic and kinetic attacks. And of course, we know that uh, Russia and China in particular are two of the biggest offenders in terms of state-sponsored cyber attacks and cyber activity. I want to give you a little bit of sense of what's happening in the space domain. So if you look uh, back to 2015, um, Russia or China, excuse me, uh, established their strategic forces and put together a very concerted campaign of growth in the space arena. So basically between Russia and China, we've seen five times increase mm -hmm. since 2015 in the number of assets that they have in space. So what does that mean? They are working to catch up with the U.S., in all of the areas like communications, surveillance, warning, and, uh, and even science and technology development in areas like navigation. Uh, but what we're also seeing is a very concerted effort, and this is all public information, uh, in countering our space capabilities, which are very fundamental to the way that the U.S. conducts uh, our way of war. So that you see now uh, effects in the cyber realm, of course, but also electronic warfare. And even we, you know, since 2007 and beyond kinetic uh, anti-satellite capabilities. And now we've seen demonstrations like uh, grappling uh, a satellite in orbit and moving it to a higher orbit. So these kinds of servicing capabilities might conceivably be purposed for uh, mm -hmm. adversarial capability as well. And then to put on top of that, uh, now we've seen increased cha or changes in the way space can be weaponized. So not too long ago, China did a pretty public uh, test of what's called a fractional orbital bombardment system. So think about a hypersonic flight vehicle that basically did an entire lap around the Earth and then flew uh, for almost 40,000 kilometers. Uh, you can imagine what that might mean in terms of an unwarned attack, particularly if it were coupled with a nuclear warhead. Mm. So these are the kinds of things that we're starting to see in our, our competitors and potential future adversaries. Mm. So all of these things, you need to start adding up and say, this is not gonna, it's not space 
or cyber or land or sea. It is concerted warfare, what the Chinese call informatized warfare across all mm -hmm. domains. Michelle, I know you've done some thinking on this as well. Anything that you'd like to add from your perspective? Just briefly, I think we know that um, Chinese doctrine um, really envisions trying to prevent the United States from projecting power into the region and to be and project, preventing us from being able to operate coherently and effectively across domains. So I think that you, we can expect you know, cyber attacks on US critical infrastructure, particularly anything that is supporting the mobilization and projection of US forces from, the, from CONUS to Asia. Um, and we can also expect just constant use of cyber, electronic and kinetic attacks um, on, on all aspects of our C4 ISR, both you know, land-based, in space, in the air, you know, wherever they may be, to really disrupt our ability to command and control our forces and to operate coherently. And so that's that that building that resilient network network of networks that can withstand that and respond in the face of that is is really the one of the long poles in the tent. Thank you. So I'm, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government. When we come back, we'll talk more about the actions we need to take to strengthen our posture in the Pacific and how innovation and policy can help. The world is full of challenges, and at MITRE, we're ready to take them head on. We're working on some of the world's most difficult problems. We're here to create a safer world. We are a world-class team of innovators, thought leaders, visionaries, and doers. We know we are called to do more, do better, think differently, and move faster. And at MITRE, we're meeting those challenges every day. We're solving problems for a safer world. Discover MITRE.org. We're back now on Building Trust in Government. I'm Jim Cook with MITRE, and I'm here with Michelle Flournoy with West Exec Advisors and Dr. Kiyoki Jackson with MITRE. And we're discussing the national security strategy and specifically the push to the Pacific. Kiyoki, we finished the last segment with, uh, before the break, uh, talking about technology. Just, if you can, what technology should the U.S. be focused on to maintain its position as world leader in these areas, especially given the enormous resources China's dedicating towards technologies like artificial intelligence and quantum? Look, first of all, we have to recognize that most of these technologies today are dual purpose. And so our economic advantage and our military advantage are inherently coupled together. And we need to be leading in technologies from artificial intelligence to quantum semiconductors and microelectronics and many more uh, for, for many reasons. Now, when you think about a potential China fight uh, we have to realize that this is an away game. So we have the twin tyrannies of distance and time. So we need to think about those kinds of technologies will ultimately provide mission capability. Uh, you might think about it in terms of our ability to find and target adversaries, our ability to, uh, to actually put precision fires on those adversary capabilities. And as uh, Michelle talked about, we need to worry about countering our adversaries, uh, ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, and their communications and command and control systems. So you might think of that as what are the technologies to be able to see, to blind, to kill our adversaries should it come to that? So let me highlight a few things. One, we need capability. And so that comes to things like uh, the sensing technologies, potentially quantum sensing, for example, in the future, 
or the uh, the the um, long range fires capabilities that might be enabled by hypersonics. So those are a couple in the capability. But I'd also highlight that we need to have speed, we need to have integration, and we need to have cost containment. Let me start with cost. You can't uh, be putting $10 million missiles against $100,000 systems. We need to figure out how to be able to proliferate low-cost COTS-enabled kinds of systems, for example. Speed. Autonomy and artificial intelligence mean that we are operating at machine speed in warfare. And so we need to be investing in those technologies that enable better decision-making and better capability to act uh, at the speed that the, the informatized fight is going to play out at. So those are just a couple of examples where we need to be putting our emphasis. I'd also say we can't forget about disruption in the future. And probably the biggest thing that uh, worries many people in this space is the potential application of bio-enabled warfare and uh, the biosecurity implications there. So technology isn't very good if you can't buy it, you can't develop it, you can't implement it, especially given the need to do that at speed. So Michelle, what are some of the key reforms you see needed for planning, budgeting, and acquisitions in the Department of Defense in order to significantly shorten the delivery to operations time and to incentivize and support innovation? So there are a whole number of things, but I mean, we really have a system right now that is optimized to deliver very large, complicated systems on, co on cost and schedule over a very long period of time, you know, 15 to 20 years. So it's a very sequential, you know, first we spend several years defining the requirements to the nth decimal point, then we start the acquisition process and we hit these various milestones, et cetera. But if the problem set is the potential that we may have to deter China, you know, in the next two to five years, and we need to be fielding capabilities that ensure that we can not only deter, but prevail in any confrontation if we must in the latter part of this decade and into the 2030s, we don't have that kind of time to go through this sequential process. Plus, if, as, you know, uh, as was said, if some of the answer here is commercial off the shelf, you don't want to put that through a traditional you know, military requirements process. You want to be able to rapidly acquire it, adapt it, integrate it, field it on much shorter timelines. We've got to create some new pathways um, uh, for acquisition on a much more rapid timeline. I think we need one that's really tailored to commercial technologies and bringing them in to the force more quickly. Um, and another that is tailored for things that we can't wait 10, 15 years for. Um, and, and I think to do that, it's not just about putting out policies. Frankly, Congress has given the department a lot of flexible authority, so I don't think it's too much of an authorities question at this point. It's really about training and incentivizing a cadre of acquisition professionals to operate differently, to be the sort of green grays of, or the Navy SEALs of, <laughs> of you know, acquisition to do this rapid integration and um, you know, prototyping, production, integration, fielding um, on a much faster time scale, both of very mature technologies um, that may be coming out of defense industry and some of the really promising commercial off-the-shelf technologies that we should be leveraging far more than we are. So um, we got to change the system to change behaviors. And I think it's, it is a doable do. You don't have to change all of acquisition, change all of PPBE. We just have to create some of these clear pathways and then 
incent train incent and reward people and promote them for actually um, delivering mm -hmm. capability faster and at scale. Kyoki, you're doing some work on this as well from in your in your role. Um, anything you'd like to add to Michelle's response? Yeah, Jim, actually our teams have been working together on some interesting things. Uh, let me highlight two areas on top of what Michelle said. One is in the area of flexibility, the other in speed. So one, one thing that would really help is flexibility in capability acquisition. So rather than specifying to the nth degree, everything about individual programs, give portfolio managers the opportunity and the ability to procure the things that they need and be flexible in moving both dollars and milestones around. The second is on speed. And I'm very encouraged by some things like what's called RADAR, the Rapid Defense Experimentation Reserve. This is an ability to uh, put pretty significant dollars against prototypes and experiments and actual operational exercises with the US military, but then rapidly move them into acquisition opportunities through something called competitive uh, advantage prototypes. So couple of real neat opportunities there. One thing I will say, and this is a, maybe an ask for, our, from, for help from our friends in Congress, but being under continuing resolution every year is really hobbling our system and our industry. Think about sending our best Olympic athletes off to race, chaining to the starting gate in, until long after the starting gun goes off, and then not even telling them what event they're going to run until halfway through the race. So... Michelle, but just in general, as the U.S. and our allies look to counter China strategies, what are some of the things we must do from a policy and an investment standpoint to mobilize and operationalize our own whole of nation efforts? I think the first thing is, you know, obviously we have got to keep a focus on helping Ukraine uh, push back against Russia and its illegal aggression. And, you know, it's a horrific situation. We have to do that. But I think we have to buy back bandwidth and leadership focus and energy and resources in the department to really look to the near to medium term challenge, which is a rising and more aggressive China. And so I think um, really um, driving that focus in the department, but also interagency, I mean, bolstering deterrence is not just a military question. There are diplomatic elements, there are economic elements, they're all, this has to be a whole of government uh, approach to be successful. From my point of view, in addition to the technology development and integration, we've got to be spending more time on competitive operational concept development. When you look at great periods of military innovation, whether it's you know the Germans creating the Blitzkrieg concept or the U.S. Navy creating a bunch of, you know creating carrier-based aviation, you know these are it's times when that you really focus attention on allowing people to break doctrine, challenge our ways of doing things, experiment, fail, try again, experiment some more, and really get to that breakthrough if conceptually, not just technologically. I, I like, like to see us doing more of that. Great. Well, I'd like to thank our guests today, Michelle Flournoy from West Exec Advisors and Dr. Kiyoki Jackson with MITRE for joining us to talk about the push to the Pacific in the national security strategy. Thank you both for your leadership on this critical issue. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Michelle. I invite our listeners to join us each month. We have upcoming episodes on the federal workforce, the practical implications of quantum technology, and other relevant and diverse policy areas. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government, brought to you by MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy on Federal News Network. 
Building Trust in Government is sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, bringing evidence-based insights to government policymaking. Discover more at MITRE.org slash policy center.